Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu. This is Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. In this episode, we will discuss some of the highlights from two recent meetings, the IASLC Asia Conference on Lung Cancer, or ACLC, that was held in Nara, Japan, and the ESMO Asia meeting that was held in Singapore. I'm joined by some of the active participants and co-chairs of these two meetings, who all happen to be global leaders in the field of lung cancer, Dr. James Yang, Dr. Tanyanan Baisamut, and Dr. Takashi Seto. Dr. James Yang is a professor of the Graduate Institute of Oncology at National Taiwan University and superintendent of National Taiwan University Cancer Center Hospital. Thank you for joining us today, James. You're welcome. Very happy to join the session. Wonderful. We also have Dr. Tanyanan Baisamut. She is a consultant in the Division of Medical Oncology at Ramatabadi Hospital and Maharol University in Thailand. And thank you for being here, Nana. Thank you, Stephen. So it's my great pleasure today to join the podcast with all of the experts here. And uh, actually, this is my first podcast, and hopefully everyone will enjoy. Oh, wonderful. Great. And we also have Dr. Takashi Seto, a thoracic medical oncologist from the National Kyushu Cancer Center in Fukuoka, Japan. Uh, Takashi, thank you for joining the episode. Hi, good morning. So everyone, uh, thank you for inviting me to this meeting. I'm in, uh, very interested in in the talk with these persons. Thank you. And and I am really excited to have you know, three global leaders in lung cancer talking about some of the latest advances. These were very exciting meetings, and I want to congratulate you on on two wonderful meetings, Dr. Yang. You were one of the chairs for the ACLC meeting. Can you comment a little about how important are these regional scientific meetings to the lung cancer community? Yeah, I think it is important for these regional meetings to summon the uh, experts as well as uh, young doctors who just enter into this field to uh, the meetings. Uh, we know that uh, most of the doctors in uh, some part of the world cannot travel too far to either a big meetings such as uh, World Lung Cancer Conference. So it is important that uh, these local meetings can give them a uh, close contact and uh, let them merge into the society. Now, James, in the year leading up to ACLC, we weren't sure whether it was going to be in person, whether it would be virtual. You know, there were some some travel restrictions in place to Japan right up in, right up until the meeting. Can you talk it, it, a little it, bit about? <laughs> it must have been challenging. Indeed, uh, the the meeting actually was planned early this last year and was supposed to be held early this year in, I think it's January or February, but uh, it was delayed and delayed because of these uh, travel restrictions. Um, No one can predict that this pandemic can last so long. We really want this meeting to be an in-person meeting. We know that it is so important to have in-person meetings, but even uh, before this meeting was uh, started, we had a lot of uh, planning meetings every two weeks in order to figure out whether we can have a true meetings in October. So we do have plans for both virtual meeting as well as in-person meetings. 
So, so in the early October, uh, Japan has just opened their borders, so allow us to enter to uh, Japan to have this meeting. We know that Japan used to be very friendly to all visitors as well as scholars to enter this meeting, to, to participate in these meetings and very few uh, visa requirements. But for uh, during COVID, this uh, restriction has become so, uh, so strict that even uh, a few weeks before the meetings, we were asked to have business visa. So this has caused a lot of problems for uh, the uh, plant in uh, plant uh, speakers as well as participants to come in. Uh, unfortunately, just a few weeks, I think it was three weeks before this meeting, the uh, restriction was relieved. So we were very, very happy that the uh, Japan has opened its border so that we were able to hold the meeting in person as well as some uh, virtual. Um, so that's a very wonderful uh, situation that we had uh, gone through. Uh, and it also uh, tell us how important it is to be confident that uh, within our society, we have a lot of people who want to engage, who want to talk to the uh, people who are doing the same direction to uh, come to uh, these uh, local regional meetings. Yeah, it's, it was just in time and it really was perfect timing. I was excited to see that as well. Takashi, you were co-chair of the ESMO Asia in Singapore. Did you have similar challenges or concerns about the ability of, of speakers and participants to travel throughout Asia? Yeah, so Singapore is lower limitation for immigrants, so we can conduct a huge number of uh, attendee meetings. However, some country, for example, China, could not come to the meeting. Thus, we prepare the virtual meeting or recording or web, meet, web presentation in this uh, program. So maybe uh, using the virtual meeting, this meeting will uh, most of, mostly uh, successful conducted. But as you mentioned, you know, I think the virtual platforms worked quite well for both ACLC and ESMO Asia. But James, you mentioned, you know, there really is additional value to to being together in person. I mean, it's more than just the social part. I think that scientifically, you, you kind of can get more out of it if it's face to face. Do you do you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, indeed. Uh, the the uh, before we went to Nara, this we we really were uh, very very. Uh, we, we don't know what to expect. For example, uh, for this meeting, because the participants seems to be uh, much less than we expected. Because this is a first in-person in meetings available for outside uh, Japan to go to Japan. So we originally planned that there will be a lot of investigators from uh, areas such as Korea, Taiwan, Philippines, Thailand, etc. to go to Japan. But uh, at the end of the day, because of the short planning time, uh, as I said, there was a big visa queue to apply for the visa. Uh, that was uh, roughly uh, four to six weeks in order to get visa. So, so there uh, has been a lot of investigators who at the end of the day had uh, canceled their uh, plan to come to uh, this NARA meetings. But when we actually hold the meeting uh, in person, we were quite satisfied with what turned out to be a very, very successful meeting. 
the participant was around uh, 200 to 300 uh, all the time, meaning that most of the participants, when they went to uh, the meeting, they stay in the meeting place. No, they, they only spend a few very limited time go out and they interact to each other frequently in the meeting uh, because of the size of the meeting that allow people to uh, get together. And indeed, it was a, uh, for many people the first time to see each other in this past two and a half year or three years. So uh, most of people are just very, very happy. Uh, in addition to that, many investigators like us, uh, we, we bring in the young generations that were were uh, able to uh, to participate in this meeting on, only virtually in this past three years. They came to the meeting and uh, they they were introduced to each other. Some of them were trained in the, uh, we have a training programs. Whole, uh, uh, this was a uh, whole by Japan called LC Rise for Young Investigators. And, and that was the first time when they were able to meet each other, talk to each other, and uh, also see their posters. Um, I never see this uh, poster discussion so uh, no, uh, so so engaged in, in other meetings. So I, I, actually, at the end of the day, we were very, very happy with this kind of arrangement. Yeah, I mean, very high levels of engagement here. And I think you bring up an important point that's with trainees and more junior investigators that, you know, haven't really had that that exposure um, sort of due to the, the pandemic. Not on, in your opinion, how important is the in-person aspect to these meetings, especially for oncologists in training? Yes. So I think uh, it's a good opportunity for them to, to participate in uh, this international congress. And personally, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm trying to encourage my uh, resident and fellow to do more research and then support them to submit the abstract to the International Congress. And then if they get the receipt, uh, the receipt of, the, uh, of the acceptance, so I will find some of the support for them to encourage them to join the meeting and present their research. So that's the way to open the young oncologist's uh, vision to the oncology world. It's not just only in thoracic malignancy, but I think it's uh, for all cancer type. Uh, that's very useful for them. So the thing is, in some of the developing country, they, um, as you know, that we have some of the limited uh, resource and budget. So if the International Congress can help uh, to support more travel grant or, uh, or uh, let's say, for example, uh, International Mentorship Award, and then they can have a chance to, to attend the meeting. And after the meetings, probably they can tag with some of the experts in that region for one or two weeks. So that, that would be uh, very, very useful for them for their career path as well. Oh, I, I love that plan. Mentorship, sponsorship. That's that's a great idea. Takashi, do you agree? Is, is there additional value in attending these scientific meetings in person? Yes, very, uh, I agree. And uh, for the, these areas meeting have uh, not only for the get the newest knowledge. So for the young investigator, this is uh, one of the way to go through the uh, global field. For example, in this area, uh, except Malaysia and Singapore, we have a native language. So we are not common 
for speaking English.、Mm. So for young investigator, this is one of the barrier to go to the global field. However, in these meetings, when the young investigator could not answer the question, the, all these,、uh, support to answer the question, their research. For example, in Esmeralda, I knew that Tom,、um, uh, Tony Mox can speak Chinese.、Mm. I believe he speak English only. <laughs> so he support the Chinese、uh, speaker in Chinese. So these、uh, areas meeting aim to、uh, education for the young investigator to go to global field. I think. Thank you. I, I agree. I, I know the moment you're talking about that was very,、uh, very kind of Tony.、Um, Let's talk about some of the data that emerged from these meetings. While it was great to network and to connect and to see friends and colleagues, there was some real data that came out of these meetings that I think was quite interesting. I'd actually like to start with some of the data that you yourself presented, James, and that was the results from the phase three ALTA three trial. Do you think you could summarize those data for our audience? I think、uh, this year's ESMO Asia is very, very interesting because we reported、uh, three,、uh, actually five、uh, phase three、uh, studies outcomes、uh, uh, the first time. And、uh, one of them is called ALTER three. This was the randomized studies for patients who had ALK fusions and had received、uh, crizotinib and failed. They could have chemotherapy, but not too many、uh, regimens. In patients who fail crizotinib were randomized to、uh, brigatinib or alectinib. In the past,、uh, in the pet,、uh, phase two studies, brigatinib had、uh, the median PFS of roughly 16 months. And for alectinib, there were two phase two studies showing that their second line after crizotinib was roughly eight、uh, to 10 months. So there was a very high probability that、uh, brigatinib can be a much better choice for electinib as a second after crizotinib failure, and, and this was the、uh, first time when when we analyzed the data at the intermediate analysis. The IDMC call it a, a closure because of futility, and so I, I just want to、uh, tell you the outcome of the study. The progression-free survival.、Uh, the the primary endpoint was、uh, independent reviewed、uh, PFS, and for both arms, it was both roughly nineteen months, one nine,、uh, for brigatinib as well as for alectinib. So for brigatinib,、uh, we were not too surprised because the original assumption was sixteen months, and but for alectinib, it was a really A huge su- surprise because、uh, that was elevation from ten、uh, months to nineteen months,、uh, or, or more more than doubled, actually.、Uh, so the study turned out to be a negative one、uh, at the futility analysis, but they also told us、uh, a very good lesson that、uh, when we planned the study in twenty nineteen. There was a time when crizotinib was already phased out. We know that alectinib. As well as、uh, at that time, almost regardless, has uh, uh, get the、uh, first line indication,、um, and, and there were also serotonin. So we the patient that we 
enrolled in this study are those patients who had uh, been treated with chrysotinib for a long time, and um, they probably uh, represent the most best population. Um, the time uh, for them to receive a chrysotinib medium was 16 months. So that was uh, obviously very different from the uh, prior phase three, phase two study for chrysotinib. That was the number was only nine to 10 months, at most 12 months. Uh, in addition to that, the time to uh, from diagnosis to for to the, for them to enter the study, uh, median for both arms was uh, roughly twenty two months. That means that was two years out after they uh, their first diagnosis. So they these are uh, relatively or were very stable patients that uh, enter the study and uh, with lactinib after chrysotinib failure, they still enjoy 19 months of uh, PFS. And that was by independent review. And for investigator assessment, the number was a little bit shorter, but it's very similar. So uh, I guess the lesson we learned is that uh, with this changing era, uh, we know that the, the field of uh, lactinib is advancing very fast. When we plan a study based on the uh, numbers in the uh, in, in prior phase two study, we have to figure out that uh, the th these patients' cohort may be changed when we start to conduct this study, so, and that that was not. Uh, uh, that was actually uh, thought about when we first planned this study, and. Uh, However, it, uh, it turned out to be, uh, the difference turned out to be much, much larger than we expected. Um, and having said that, the experience of electinity as a second line is exactly what we experience in the in our clinic, that most uh, patients who receive uh, electinib after chrysotinib seems to have roughly two years of median PFS. So I think this is a, very uh, unfortunately a negative study, but uh, a textbook-like uh, experience was. Yeah, really good points there. I mean, the the it's a really selected population, and maybe the re results are different in the frontline setting. We we don't know. I think overall, James, this is a really courageous study. I really want to commend the sponsors for doing this. You don't see a lot of head-to-head -head studies anymore, so I, I love that confidence of going head-to-head. -head. Now, while you mentioned the negative study, we didn't see a significant difference. Both arms performed well. I thought that some of the data you presented at Esmoasia was important about the EMO4-ALK fusion variant. And you really showed that that was pretty a pretty powerful prognostic factor. James, do you think we'll get to a point where fusion variant will help guide our initial therapy? Well, I think the uh, the data we presented was to show that there was some imbalance between brigotinib and lactinib. Um, it, it seems to favor lactinib a little bit, but, but because of the few number of patients that we were able to test from the plasma, this may not be, have a big impact of, for the study outcome. And when you compare variant 1 and variant 3 patients, uh, the curve seems to be quite similar uh, between lactinib and brigotinib. So I don't think that you can use this to select one drug or the other. Uh, and uh, in addition to that, we also test the plasma, uh, detectable plasma-free DNA. That was only roughly 30% in both arms. It, it, this also indicated that the, this is a uh, good prognostic group. We know that number when first patients first diagnosed 
or during the uh, the courses most uh, studies have shown that you can detect up to 60 to 70 percent of occlusions in the plasma now you mentioned james there's a lot of phase three studies i was really surprised by that we saw data from another phase three alk study the alicia trial and uh, nana you presented these data can you tell our audience briefly uh, what you reported Yes, so actually this is a phase three uh, ARC positive in first line setting, and we just done in Asian region only for this uh, phase three study. And this is the randomized between the first line electinib 600 milligram BID versus crisotinib. 250 milligrams BAD um, in, in this setting. And it's interesting result that the PFS is strongly favor electinib arm with the median progression-free survival at almost 42 months compared to 11 months of crisotinib arm with the hazard ratio 0.33. And uh, in those with the CNS metastasis, Again, uh, electinib arm shows superiority in the median progression-free survival at 42 months compared just to just uh, nine months in the crisotinib arm, and the hazard the hazard ratio is 0.17. And for the survival in, uh, data, so actually it's still immature, and actually this study they not allowed for crossover uh, in this study. And for the median overall survival is not rich, but um, the overall survival rate for the crisotinib arm is a little bit higher, 66.4% compared to 56.66% um, and hazard ratio is 0.6. So we will, stay, uh, we'll still need to have a long-term overall survival follow-up. And Regarding the safety issue, so there's no new signal safety issue compared to the global uh, Alex study or the other study. And uh, I just would like to add a little bit on for uh, regarding the overall survival data. So eventually this trial, as I mentioned, that they not allow for crossover, but if the patient fail uh, crisotinib, so um, uh, they have the information show that the post treatment after crisotinib fail is um, around 30 to 40% that the patients receive electinib. So that's why they affect a little bit of the overall survival right now, but we need the long-term uh, overall survival follow-up. Yeah, a bit of a controversial point that the lack of crossover in that study, but very impressive PFS results. You're talking about hazard ratios of you know, 0.33, you said 0.17 in in those with brain meds. They're very impressive. There's been a lot of control, or a lot of discussion, you know, uh, about the control arm, and because we know that crizotinib is is inferior to agents like electinib, brigadinib, and lorlatinib. We've known that for a while. Could you comment a little on, on the control arm and, and the study design overall? Yeah. So um, at the very beginning to design this study, I think. In several countries, they also have uh, crisotinib as a first-line treatment, especially in the uh, developing country. So that's why the landscape often change after the study is in uh, initially designed and opened. So uh, that is the things. Yeah, it takes a little time, I guess, for the, the study to develop. So that's certainly a good point. And I guess the, the big reality is even though the the drugs are approved and we see the data, um, they're not always available everywhere. So we, we definitely need to work on better access to the drugs uh, all around and, and improving equity to that. I think it's an important point. Um, and so these yeah. were important, you know, these are important studies in, in ALK fusions. Uh, we saw a little data 
as well on a fusion uh, that's a little less common, and that's NRG1. We know this is a rarer fusion event, but it is proving to be an actionable target. We've previously seen responses with a fat nib in NRG1 fusion tumors. Uh, we've seen activity with the HER2, HER3 bispecific antibody, xenocatuzumab. And we also saw results from the Creststone study that was presented by our colleague, Dr. Misako Nagasaka, and that showed outcomes with the HER3 monoclonal antibody, serabantamab, in NRG1-positive solid tumors. Takashi, can you tell our, our listeners what she reported? Okay. So Misako reported the phase two single-arm study for the NRG1 fusion-positive solid tumor with uh, Selvantamab 3-gram weekly uh, IV. Primary endpoint was a response rate. However, NRG1 fusion is very rare gene alteration uh, reported on 15 patients, uh, included uh, 93% of non-smoker lung cancer and uh, 12 available for response. The response rate was 33, and the disease control rate is 92%. In non-smoker lung cancer, response rate was 36%, including the two complete response. In a safety, well-tolerated, and most common treatment-related advanced events is diarrhea, fatigue, and lash, but most low-grade. Thus, Seribantana has FDA fast-track designation, mm. but this is an important point. How do I find NRG fusion? This is a clinical question. Thank you. Yeah, no, Takashi, that's that's the key here. I mean, uh, these are, are good data. The drug looks well tolerated, a good response rate, but these are rare events. Now, they might be a little more common in Asia. I think that the challenge is that you really do need RNA sequencing to find that. And that's when RNA-seq is added to DNA-based NGS because the NRG1 gene is so big and it's mostly non-coding introns. You know, only 0.3% is coding. So uh, you really do need RNA-seq. Takashi, is RNA-seq available, you know, throughout Japan for your patients? No. Uh, in Japan, so RNA-seq is not uh, reimbursed um, in Japan. But we have a nationwide gene screening platform, LC Scrum Asia, in Japan. So all negative sample for the Amoy Panlang PCR panel and the NGS, we screen the RNA. So some patient uh, having the NRG1 fusion in RNA sequence. In Japan, only research for gene screening. However, uh, we can find the few NRG1 fusion in non-smoker lung cancer. Hmm. So through the, the research protocol, yeah, the LC Scrum protocol is a really important one. James, can you comment on the availability of, of RNA-based NGS in Taiwan? Yeah, um, most uh, NGS were done through commercial 
you know, companies and uh, many of them had uh, RNA um, component. So um, I think uh, most of companies now uh, doing both DNA and RNA in order to uh, to look for these uh, fusions uh, as well as skippings. So these are much easier to be detected by RNA-based uh, NGS. Good. So, so good access. I'm here in Taiwan. Nana, uh, any problems with access to NGS in Thailand? Yes. So there's a problem because either the healthcare schema in Thailand, either um, the universal coverage, social security, or the CSMBS. So we cannot reimburse uh, any NGS testing. So, so that is one of the problem. And Actually, we just published some of the uh, NGS, uh, I mean, molecular testing guideline in Asian population. And James and Professor Sato also in this uh, paper. So it's just published in JTO. Um, so, so because of uh, in our Asian population, we have very high prevalence of the uh, EGFR mutation. So uh, in Thailand, clinic most of the physician in our clinical practice. So probably we start with the EGFR uh, and ARK testing first because of uh, right now EGFR TKI is just uh, approved and reimbursed in all healthcare schema just like two years, uh, almost three years ago. So that's why all the patients can access to the EGFR TKI, but it's just the first line uh, I mean, uh, the first generation EGFR TKI, so uh, that we can reimburse. So that's why the sequential uh, testing will will be more feasible in Thailand for the patient who can pay some of the out pocket for the testing. But in the private practice, all the patients can afford the drugs, can afford uh, everything. So probably uh, most of our uh, oncologists. They prefer to use the uh, small panel NGS, um, like 10 genes, 12 genes. That saves a lot of cost for uh, the testing. It's a good point. You know, we, we always talk about, you know, multiplex testing, the advantages, and we, we prefer NGS here in the U.S., but you know, the calculus changes a little when the incidence, the prevalence of EGFR mutations is so much higher. And so maybe in some cases, the sequential does make more sense. You know, let's let's talk about some of the EGFR studies that were reported at these meetings. You know, our colleague from China, Dr. Shun Lu, presented results from a phase three study of Befotertinib. Nana, can you explain those results to us? Yes, this is quite interesting. And this is a phase three uh, study run in China only. And uh, they compare uh, Befotertinib, it's a third generation EGFR-TKI, versus Icotinib, which is a first generation EGFR-TKI that approved in China. So in the common sensitizing EGFR mutation uh, populations. So they randomized uh, one-to-one and they hit the primary endpoint because of the progression-free survival is favor Befotertinib uh, at 22 months compared to almost 14 months for the icotinib um, with the hazard ratio of 0.49 and similar in dose with the CNS met. Uh, the hazard ratio is 0.48 prefer in the third generation compared with the uh, first, first generation. And if without brain metastasis, the hazard ratio is about the same is uh, 0.49. And um, the point is for this uh, third generation EGFR-TKI, but for tertinib, they have some of the interesting toxicity 
that might be a little bit different from the others, uh, uh, third generation like osimertinib, because they have more frequent of the adverse event in uh, thrombocytopenia is happen around uh, 58% and the headache that is very unique side effect. So we, we can found it around 40% and some of the pulmonary embolism is almost 10% compared to the low uh, prevalence in the the other third generation EGFR-TKI. But most of the uh, toxicity is modest in low grade, grade one or grade two. Mm. So a nice randomized study here, results here, I think maybe not unexpected, but good to see the data, some unique toxicities. We saw a similar study um, that was the LASER 301 study. And that was presented by our colleague from South Korea, Dr. Byung-Chul Cho. Takashi, can you talk a little bit about those highlights briefly? Okay, very similar study design. This is a phase study comparing the third generation EGFR TKI of Lazaratinib versus first generation TKI Jefitinib in EGFR mutation positive non-small cell lung care in the first line setting. Including the only common mutation of duration 19 and L8. 58R, randomized one-to-one to daily lazarotinib and jefitinib. If the T79M was positive after the jefitinib, the crossover was allowed. So randomized patient was 397 and PFS favor in the lazarotinib of median progression-free survival of 20.6 months versus 9.7 for jefinitinib, hazard ratio of 0.45. And the benefits seen uh, in the subgroup of CNS meds. Uh, patients who have only the CNS meds, hazard ratio of 0.42 and without the hazard ratio of 0.44. The OS is mature, but hazard ratio 0.74. The main toxicity, uh, including the LAS and the diarrhea and the paracetesiasis is a unique uh, side effect of lazatinib. Yeah, the paresthesias were interesting, and I don't know that we, um, you know, fortunately, mostly low grade, but they did something to watch. But there was a lot less diarrhea, less rash than we see mm. with other drugs. But and overall, we have two phase three studies here that show a third gen TKI is better than a first gen TKI. And, you know, we we learned that already from Flora when we saw osimertinib vastly superior to, to first gen TKIs. So I guess my question for the, the two of you is, are these studies important? Now, how critical is it? that we have other options in this setting? Is there any financial impact? Takashi, what do do you think? Okay, in a Flora study, so subset analysis of Asian population, especially Japanese population, slightly worse compared to full set. So half of patient from Japan that uh, but uh, data from uh, not but, uh, not good data from Japan uh, cause uh, subgroup analysis of Asian population 
not so good compared to full set. So Asian subset is uh, important for these two uh, phase three trial, I think. Yeah. And uh, I am interested in cost. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. If it, if it brings the cost down, then there's certainly value. I think that's yet to be seen. Um, but but a good point, Takashi, about the different populations. What what about you, Nana? Does having more options translate to better drug access? Of course. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, that right now we just have the uh, first uh, generation EGFR TKI that can reimburse in for all healthcare schemas uh, for the Thai patients. If we start with the third generation EGFR TKI uh, as a first line treatment, that means patients have to pay off pocket. And I would say that right now, the price of the uh, only third gen in Thailand available is Osimertinib is very high. And just few of the patients can access to the drug. And if we have more options, so I believe in marketing mechanism that uh, the price will uh, will be going down in both of the uh, previous third gen one and the new third gen one. So that will help a lot of patients to access to the drug, especially for the Ishefar mutant uh, patient, because of we have a lot of uh, Ishefar mutant patients in our country. And our region. I, I certainly do hope that the cost comes down. That'll certainly be a reason for, for celebration. Look forward to that. And so this um, lazertinib study could have financial impact. There was another lazertinib study reported at, at these meetings, and that was cohort C from the Chrysalis 2 trial that was also presented by Cho. Uh, James, can you tell our listeners about the, the Chrysalis 2 data that emerged? Yeah, um, there are uh, several cohorts for Chrysalis uh, study and uh, this uh, study has actually combined uh, lazertinib plus mivatamib. Uh, so this was a phase two. This is a phase two study of patients with non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, for cohort C uh, is for patient with atypical or uncommon EGFR mutations, but not including EGFR exon twenty insertion. That that was that is in cohort B. Uh, so patients were treated naive or had a prior first or second gen uh, EGFR TKI. So in this uh, study, uh, 52 patients were included and half of them G719X and exon 18 and 27% or 14 L861Q that's in uh, exon 21 and uh, exon 20 point mutation is uh, 768I at 15% and others were less common. We know these threes were the ones that Fastinib had FDA-approved indications ever since uh, 2018, based on very limited number of patients. So among these uh, 30 uh, efficacy available patients, uh, the response rate was uh, 53%, and uh, even post-Fastinib, the response rate was 50%. Uh, for treatment naive, uh, it was a fifty-nine percent, and the duration uh, was not uh, measurable. It is of this report. Toxicity uh, it's typical EGFR related, but we know it's much higher if you use Amy, uh, including rash fifty-two percent, paronychia fifty-three percent, stomatitis twenty-seven percent, and diarrhea nineteen percent. And the discontinuation was only noted for uh, 6% of patients. 
some some really interesting data. You know, we're we're seeing more. I think we're seeing more atypical eGFR mutations because our testing is getting better as we're moving away from PCR and more to NGS. We're finding these atypical mutations. As you mentioned, the FDA approved standard of care here is the second generation irreversible eGFR kinase inhibitor, afatinib. And that's you know based on on really your seminal work, James. So can you tell me how how this regimen of amivantamab and lazertinib compares to our standard of fatinib? Well, I think uh, the fact that uh, Amy itself, uh, in theory, is uh, capable of degrading eGFR, uh, no matter what kinase uh, was uh, in inside of the cells. Amy itself may serve the purpose. Uh, so I'm not sure whether a lazertinib is needed for these uncommon EGFR mutations. And the fact that uh, 50% of patients had a uh, response after a fatinib, it seems that uh, these two drugs are complementary, so they can be used uh, in sequence. Uh, I'm not sure whether a combination is a good idea because uh, the, all these side effects were overlapping. Yeah, interesting. Uh, I'd love to see how this shakes out. Maybe we have time for one more study quickly. I'd love to, to get your thoughts on Checkmate 722. This was a study presented by Dr. Tony Mock. Nana, can you quickly give us the, the highlights of that study? Yes. So this is a phase three study uh, randomized between the, the combination of nivolumab and chemotherapy versus chemotherapy alone in EGFR positive and post-TKI treatment already. So originally, they designed for half the sample size at 500 patients, but because of the pandemic, so uh, uh, it caused a slow accrual, and then uh, the sample size is reduced to 270, but the final analysis is just uh, 212 progression-free survival event and uh, that's why the study was under power. And for the result, uh, there is no significant difference between uh, progression-free survival and overall survival, but uh, it's just a number uh, higher, a little bit of the median overall survival at uh, 19.4 months in the combination arms compared to 16 months uh, for the chemotherapy, um, but it's not statistically significant. So, and it showed just a little bit better of the uh, survival rate in the combination arms with the high PDL1 expression population, but it's just like a small subset. Uh, this study is negative, it's under power, but it gives us some of the important concepts in the post uh, EGFR TKI treatment. Uh, James, any, any thoughts on Checkmate 722? Yeah, I think uh, this was the first study that was designed to test the uh, value of adding checkpoint inhibitors to chemotherapy. We know that chemotherapy is a standard second line after TKI failure. At that time, uh, the standard TKI was uh, first generation. But later on, uh, we know that third generation osimertinib has become a standard of care. So uh, the population of this study, including both, uh, one is those who had uh, first generation or second generation, but uh, after progression, they do not have T7IDM in the tissue. And the other cohort was those who had osimertinib only as a first line. And uh, when when the first the, when the study was designed uh, years ago, uh, it was really robust uh, in order to 
uh, view the difference. Uh, originally, there was three arms. The other arm was EP Nevo, which was dropped after roughly 50-something patients because of uh, lack of efficacy. But uh, these two arms uh, were also reduced in terms of uh, in, in, in size. Uh, it was, the, the study was originally planned to have 300 patients in each arm, but you, as you can see, drop and drop and reduce the power. Uh, but at the end of the day, you see the hazard ratio of 0.75 was achieved. And although there was no difference if you look at the median PFS, but there was a parallel line uh, in the later patients that's why we don't we 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 actually have not waited for enough events because this parallel line seems to last forever, meaning that there are certain population of patients that benefit from adding Evolma to chemotherapy that stay very, very stable over the time. And uh, uh, that was also shown in the subset analysis in that a high PDL1, meaning a PDL more than 50% of patients who had uh, derived a lot of benefit from this combination. Uh, and those who, in addition to that, those who had a common EGFR mutation, and some of them, those patients here are had harbor uncommon EGFR mutation, but those who had common EGFR mutation seems to derive more benefit and patients who was uh, had osimertinib uh, derived much more benefit. So I think these are uh, some of the lessons that we take out from this 722 study. Overall, it's a negative study, but the subsets were quite interesting. There is a follow-up study that uh, is coming, which is uh, 7A9 uh, using uh, map. And we know in, before this, there was a uh, positive study, uh, Orient 31, uh, Bartholi uh, done in China that shows adding um, anti-angiogenesis with immuno uh, checkpoint inhibitors do help this patient. So I guess this field is not ended yet. Uh, we're still heavy waiting for these two, the final analysis. Yeah, those were intriguing results. That high PDL1 curve really suggested that some people were kind of getting a tail, like we were getting durable benefit. And I agree. I think that we're going to keep talking about this because as good as our TKIs are, they're not cures. And, you know, the whole appeal of immunotherapy is the durability. And if we can deliver that type of of benefit to patients with driver positive lung cancer, I think that really could be a game changer. Indeed. Um, yeah. I, I kind of want to lean into the the expertise for from the three of you. I mean, the, the three of you see a tremendous number of patients with EGFR mutant lung cancer in Thailand, Taiwan, Japan. So maybe I could just ask all three of the same question. Today, outside of a trial, uh, today in 2022 and going into 2023, what is the current role for immunotherapy in a patient with an EGFR mutant lung cancer? Not, let's, Nana, let's start with you. Yes. So... As I mentioned earlier, that we learned a lot from the CheckMed uh, 722, and as uh, Professor Young already uh, mentions that because of, uh, I think some of the concept that we learn is probably some of the groups that might benefit from this combination and and right now, and so so that's why we need some of the predictive biomarkers for uh, select the right patients. And we need more study to confirm this concept. But uh, still, the immunotherapy, I think, I believe is still uh, benefits somehow in the post-HFR-TKI setting as we have the data from the Empower 150 and uh, with the combination of the doublet platinum-based chemotherapy uh, and tyrangiogenesis and the 
uh, immunotherapy. So, and the other study also done with the different agents in uh, Hong Kong, and that confirmed uh, the subgroup of the uh, post-EGFR TKI that have the benefit of this combination. And right now, uh, this regimen is approved in several countries. So, so coming back a little bit to the uh, mechanism of the EGFR resistance. So we have, everyone knows that we have the EGFR dependent and independent. So for, uh, for the person who have the uh, EGFR dependent, especially the C797S or uh, the combination of the others EGFR. So we need some of the uh, the effect, effective, the, uh, EGFR TKI. So fourth generation EGFR TKI right now is in the role is in the, uh, ongoing early phase study, phase one and phase two. So wait for, just wait for the result. And we hope that it might have the, uh, dramatically result and, and, and answer this unmet need, uh, in this population. But the other groups for the EGFR independent. So uh, probably the patient might have some of the bypass track. Uh, so we can, a lot of uh, agents like MET inhibitors or the others uh, inhibitors that in the role in the, uh, in the early phase study. So trying to prove if the patient have the bypass track. So is that work for using the, uh, the targeted therapy? Or if the patient doesn't have the specific bypass track. So I believe immunotherapy would be uh, play some of the important role in this group of patients. Excellent. So we're looking for alternate strategies first, um, maybe a role for, for patients where we don't have those options. James, in your practice today, what is the role for immunotherapy in, in EGFR mutant lung cancer? Yeah, uh, as a single agent, I think it plays a very little role or no role at all. Uh, we see their response in the uh, very... Uh, uh, courageous studies uh, done in UCLA. Um, and, uh, uh, but for a combination with chemo and anti-angiogenesis, Nana has pointed out that uh, uh, many of us use IMPAR 150 regimen. And uh, it was also shown to be beneficial for in the uh, Oriental uh, 31 study. Um, so this could be a uh, viable choice for those patients. Although we know that uh, in part 150, there was uh, only uh, less than 100 patients uh, that, that were uh, looked at. But 722 certainly uh, show us another uh, direction that patients who had uh, fairly GFRTKI and uh, need chemotherapy. Perhaps if they had uh, high PDL1, if you had a chance to look at these uh, couple of mile curves, you'll be astonished. Uh, that uh, how, how different they were if they received nivolumab in addition to chemotherapy. So uh, although uh, with that subset analysis, it was not power to see anything, but uh, you were you almost tended to use uh, nivo in those HIPDL1 uh, patients. Yeah, and, yeah. and remember these HIPDL1 are uh, the one that were detected at the time of diagnosis, not at the time when they uh, do uh, this uh, uh, second line treatment. So I, I guess uh, this field is still evolving. I, I do think that PTO one play uh, some roles in these patients and we'll, we'll just have to follow. Yeah, those curves were different. <laughs> I agree. There's, there's no question. They were different curves. And uh, even if you look at the overall uh, no, hazard ratio of NEVO plus chemo, uh, it's 0.75. It's just underpowered and overall survival 
0.82. It's underpowered. Uh, if this study is power enough, it will become a positive study. The margin for PFS is right at 1.00. So uh, I, I guess, um, uh, but 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 if you look at the uh, PDO1 uh, 0 to uh, 49, all the benefits go to PDO1 more than 50%. So, yeah. so right. I guess it's, it's a very interesting study. But for for those listening, um, we I think we want to be clear. While we we say PDL one may play a role, we're only talking about the post TKI space. And if we saw PDL one high, you know, up front front line, I think we all agree that TKI is still the way to go there. Exactly. Takashi, what about you in your practice uh, in Japan? Uh, what okay. role does immune? Okay, so in Japan, we already conducted the phase two randomized phase two trial after the EGFR-TK treated patient compared with Nivolva versus platinum pemetrexone. In this study, there is no benefit in uh, Nivolva monotherapy. So in this uh, checkmate 722, maybe only effect for the PDL1 TPS more than 50%. My clinical question is that, uh, only a PDL1 hypo expression patient benefit the combination with the chemotherapy with anivorma. But these population truly needs a chemotherapy or not. So these um, PDL1 high population can treat uh, could be treated with a uh, nivolumab monotherapy. Hmm. So this is my uh, clinical question. But uh, in Japanese clinical practice, after the recurrence from the third generation EGFR-TKI, we recommended the patient the carboplatin, paclitaxel, bevacizumab, and atezolizumab treatment for the patient. Okay. Wow. You know, I'm hearing all three of you really putting a, a lot of use in the Empower 150 regimen, not one that's used as much in the U.S., but um, maybe we need to, to look at our practice a little more. I, I would love to, to keep talking with all three of you. You have so much valuable experience, so much insights, but you know, we, we are unfortunately out of time. Uh, I'm hoping maybe the you know, each of you can join me on a future episode, but for now, I'm great, you know, really grateful for all of you finding the time in your busy schedules to join us here today. Uh, Dr. James Yang, uh, thank you for being so generous with your time and, and for all the work that you do. Thank you. Glad to pop safe. Wonderful. D- Dr. Takashi Seto, uh, thanks for joining us. Congratulations on a wonderful meeting. It was great to see yeah, you in Singapore. I, yeah. Thank you for giving me opportunity to these exciting uh, talk. Thank you very much. Yeah, very exciting. Dr. Tanyanan Basamut, um, again, thank you for, for providing such wonderful insights. Congratulations to you as well. Thank you. And uh, thank you, RSLC and uh, Steve, for this kind invitation. So I enjoyed this uh, session very much. And hopefully, everyone will enjoy this. And this will be useful for you for the summarize of the highlight in both meetings. Thank you very much. Oh, no, thank you. I certainly enjoyed it. And thanks to everyone there for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official IASLC podcast. We hope that you'll tune in regularly to give us a listen. You can engage on Twitter at IASLC or at our website, IASLC.org. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. 
You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 